So I believe tonight is the last in our series through the book of Hebrews. Oh, I know there's a 13th chapter. We're doing that as well. Okay, fantastic. I was misled earlier. Rightio. It's a penultimate message in the book of Hebrews, and we're starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The first lens that we're going to look at this passage through is that of the Christian life being compared to a race. And we see that in this passage. The writer says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. I don't know if you've discovered this, but the Christian life is not a sprint. It's not even a park run. It's not even a marathon. It's, it's a long, long race that takes close to a lifetime. And the goal is not even to win the race. It's just to complete the race. And it's, it's a unique race because all of our races look a little bit dif different. We're told to, to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And remember, this idea of perseverance is, is, is central to the book of Hebrews. We've, we've looked at that before. Uh, the, the Jewish believers were beginning to be persecuted, and, and they were tempted to just give it up. And now the author in chapter 12 is again saying, no, in this race, uh, persevere, persevere. I don't know how many of you follow the sporting news, but this man made history on October the 12th this year, Eliud, he became the first person to run a marathon in under two hours. Sick. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I just want you to pick up on this whole metaphor of running the race and just draw out some, some lessons as an illustration from, from this man's awesome achievement. Our passage starts off with these words, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's run the race with perseverance. This great cloud of witnesses, it's like the people in the stands that are cheering us on. It's our fellow believers, it's the saints, dead and alive, who are, who are cheering us on. There's uh, the witnesses, as it were, for Iliad's race. This passage also talks about, um, actually I'm running ahead of myself, but he had a whole team of people that, that, that helped him to run the race because you don't get to run a, a sub two-hour marathon by yourself. In fact, it takes a crowd of people this big to help you do it. These were the people that he trained with in Kenya, and here they are running. In fact, when he broke the record, he always had six fresh people, a little bit like the Springboks bringing on subs. He always had six people 
in a V formation running ahead of him to kind of provide him with protection. And, and it, to me, that was also like a great picture of the, the cloud of witnesses cheering us on as we live the Christian life, as we run our race. We don't do it alone. And I hope you experience that, that kind of fellowship. We're also told the way we're to run. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus. And interestingly enough, when they broke this record, I say we, when, when, when they broke the record, when he broke the record, there was an electric car with a laser shining a light on the tar, and, and that provided the, the speed at which they needed to run. So those guys ran, fixing their eyes on that on that mark, and that's what got them through. I see a parallel here. We're to, to fix our eyes on, on Jesus as we run the race. There are a number of places in the Bible where the Christian life is, is referred to as, as being like running a race. Here in Galatians 5, another example, people were beginning to trust in their own good deeds to impress God. And Paul writes, you were running a good race, who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth. So that's a reference to the Christian life being a race. Here in Philippians 2, Paul is an apostle. He says, guys, like keep it together. Otherwise, I'm going to feel as though I've run my race in vain. There's another reference in 2 Timothy 4 where Paul, at the end of his life, he knows he's going to be martyred for his faith. And he says, I fought the good fight fight. I have finished the race. So this is a common theme in the New Testament, that the Christian life is, is like a race. In summary then, there is this cloud of witnesses egging us all on. We're, we're not doing the Christian life alone. And let's fix our eyes on Jesus. The passage also tells us that we need to throw off everything that hinders. Imagine a person running, carrying a whole lot of weight. I mean, I know a little bit of what that's like. And, and it does slow you down, particularly on the hills. Let, let's throw off everything that, that, that is hindering our devotion to the Lord and our service to the Lord. The passage also says, and, and and let's also throw off the sin that so easily entangles. And, and sin in our lives, it's like trying to run through a jungle. You, there's just so much stuff that's going to be slowing us down. So this is a little of what this passage is, is telling us. And what should motivate us when we're running the race of life and, and things get difficult? Well, we're told to, to consider him, Jesus, verse 3, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful people so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What is it that, that keeps us going as Christians? When, when we feel like we're running out of steam, we want to give up, we're, we're entangled, we're to, to, to consider Jesus. He is our model. He is our inspiration. So that's what the first few verses in Hebrews 12 are all about. Let us run the race set before us with perseverance, throwing off everything that hinders and the sin that easily catches, 
entangles us. And let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us consider him as we run. For the remainder of the sermon, I want to talk about the next part in this passage, and that is the Lord's discipline, the Lord's discipline in our lives. But before we read on, I, I want to just ask you, what is your gut reaction when you hear the word discipline? Discipline. For many people, it's a, a painful subject. They think of being ill-treated by parents and others in authority. And a lot of stuff has gone on in the name of discipline. And a lot of it hasn't been good. But discipline in itself is a, a beautiful thing, particularly when it's God's discipline in our lives. Discipline is one of the most important aspects of parenting. You, we simply can't let children to grow up and behave any way they want to. They have to be, be shaped, and, and that shaping is through the application of discipline. What about disciplining ourselves to get up early in the morning, to apply ourselves to our studies, what we eat, how we exercise. Self-discipline is essential if we're to succeed in anything in this world. So even though discipline can be abused, it is a beautiful thing, a necessary thing. And there's an amazing verse here in Hebrews 5 where it talks about Jesus who was sinless. But we're told that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, skip to verse 8 where it picks up the thought, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. In other words, even Jesus experienced the Father's discipline because discipline is not punishment. Discipline is is, is the way you shape a person's behavior. And, and even Jesus, he, he wasn't imperfect. The, the Greek, it's the gist of he became complete. He became fully the, the, in his character, the person that God needed him to be. And Jesus faced hardships in his life. Do you see that there? Jesus, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Jesus didn't just suffer on the cross. He lost his father at a, at a, at a young age, I believe. He, he, he would have suffered in many ways, and God used those hardships in Jesus' life to shape his character and to prepare him for his mission. Let's look at verse 5. And have you forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons? My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. This is a quote from the book of Proverbs, chapter 3. There it is. Back to Hebrews 12. We're told to, to not make light of the Lord's discipline. 
What does it mean to, to make light of the Lord's discipline? It, it means we just cast it off. We, we perhaps don't even recognize that it is God disciplining us. We don't take it seriously. We, we just dismiss it. We're told, my son, my daughter, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. The second thing we're told in this passage is, and do not lose heart when the Lord rebukes you. Just like God used difficult circumstances in Jesus' life to shape him and to prepare him and to build character in him, God uses hardships and difficulties in our lives to discipline us. Sometimes we don't see that it's even God. We, we kind of make light of what's happening to us. We think it's bad luck or the devil. But it can be the loving hand of God disciplining us. Don't make light of, of the Lord's discipline. On the other hand, we, we mustn't lose heart. And when God disciplines us or rebukes us for something we've done, we mustn't throw a pity party and say, woe is me, God doesn't love me anymore. It's precisely because God does love us that He disciplines us. There's a warning to fathers in the Bible as we discipline children. Verse, it applies to mothers as well, I'm sure, although it's often the dads that are a little bit more over the top. Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. What does it mean to exasperate your children? Some parents think that because discipline is a good thing, you, the more the merrier. It doesn't work like that at all. Some, some fathers can, can exasperate their children by, by applying too much discipline, by setting the standards too high, and then the the child or the teenager feels they can never shape up. They can never meet the requirement, and they, be, they give up. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. I want you to notice that discipline is a real thing in our lives as Christians. God does not sit idly by when we get up to no good as Christians. He really does not. And if you sin and sin and sin and sin and God does nothing about it, you really need to worry if you're his child or not. Verse 5, have you forgotten that it's the sons and daughters that God disciplines? Verse 6, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. It's because we're God's children. That's why he disciplines us. Have you ever felt the desire to discipline someone else's child? Particularly in the shops. You know, when they're screaming or grabbing stuff or whatever. But it's a no-no. You discipline your own children. 
and other people's children someone else's responsibility. God disciplines us because we are His children. It's even stated the the opposite way in verses 8. For if you are not disciplined, and everyone is disciplined, uh, undergoes discipline, you're illegitimate children. You're not true sons. What son is not disciplined by his father? You know what it says in uh, John 15? Here the, the church, Christians, are seen as being the vine, like a grapevine that produces fruit. And, and Jesus is the, the, the gardener in this image. And he says, if he finds a branch in the vine that is not bearing, that is not producing fruit, he cuts it off and he throws it into the fire. And here's the shocker. If he finds a, a part of the vine that really is producing fruit, he cuts that as well. <laughs> he prunes it. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. This is what the discipline of the Lord looks like. And then a connection is drawn between the discipline of our earthly parents. Verse 9, we have all had human fathers. Well, I know some of you have not lived with your father or your father is deceased. We have had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. The phrase I want to highlight is this, that earthly parents, we discipline our children as, as we think best, and a lot of the time we get it wrong. I've never met a parent that comes to their child's 21st birthday and can stand up and say, every call I made was the right one. <laughs> Some parents are far too lenient, far too permissive, and the discipline is inadequate, and the child kind of does whatever they want to do. Other parents err, uh, err on the other side, too quick to get angry. Standards that are unreasonably high. Human parents get it wrong all the time. And when we do, we need to profoundly apologize. But God never gets it wrong. Our human fathers disciplined us for a time as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good so that we may share in His holiness. Do you see the two reasons why God disciplines us? He disciplines us for our good, to bring the best out of us. And He disciplines us so that we can share in His holiness. God takes holiness a lot more seriously than we tend to. For us, it's we want to be happy and we'll, we're fine with being holy later. God, God likes us to be holy now and happy later. That's... That's 
That's how he operates. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. And this passage also points out that discipline is painful. It is painful. When you're experiencing the discipline of the Lord, it is not pleasant, but painful, we're told. It's only later on we reap the benefit, which is righteousness and peace. For those that have been trained, it is a a process. I just want to be crystal clear on one point, and it's this one. I'm not saying that whenever something bad happens to you or something painful happens in your life, that that's the Lord disciplining you. Often terrible things happen to wonderful people. But we mustn't make light of the Lord's discipline because sometimes when we're going through a hardship, it is in fact the discipline of of the Lord, and we need his discernment to tell the difference between the two. Here are some other scriptures about how God uses hardships in our lives to shape our character, to discipline us. Here's, here's one from James 1. We're, we're to consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds, because we know that the testing of our faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that we may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If God the Father used hardships and suffering to shape Jesus' character, and he was perfect to begin with, how much more will God use hardships and challenges in our lives to shape our character? Peter says the same thing about the testing of our faith. I wonder how you respond to the discipline of the Lord in your life. Perhaps some of you don't even notice that God is disciplining you. Maybe you want to start noticing. We mustn't make light of the Lord's discipline. The second way that we ought not to respond to the Lord's discipline in our lives is to lose heart, to give up, to think God is against us, that God doesn't love us anymore. And the way in which we should submit to God's discipline, I gave it away, is is to submit. Verse 9, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Friends, when God is trying to discipline us, the very best thing we can do is learn the lesson as quickly as possible because God doesn't give up. And if we don't learn it the first time round, we just do that lesson again. And so it goes on and on and on and on. 
Be encouraged, friends. Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. I'm not quite sure how to interpret the scripture. It could be saying, man up, guys. I'm using that generically. Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, that the lame may not be disabled, rather healed. I think this is about how we respond to God's discipline. It's a not giving up. It's a, a putting things right in this race of life that we're running to, to make sure that we've got a, a clear path ahead of us. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God, that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. And see that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau. And you can read the rest of the chapter if you would like to. The Christian life is like a race. But there is a crowd of people cheering us on. And we running in this church, we're to cheer each other along. There is a need, though, for perseverance, for us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to throw off sin, to throw off the things that are holding us back in our devotion to the Lord. And when it comes to the discipline of the Lord, know that He only disciplines us because He loves us, because He is treating us as His children. Sometimes we have a funny idea of what grace is. We think that because we're saved by grace, we can live however we like, and it's all cool with God. That's really not the case at all. We're justified by His grace through faith. But God is at work within us to, to make us into saints. And how do we respond to his discipline? We can make light of it. We can lose heart or we can submit. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this reassuring scripture that you are a loving father to each one of us. And that if you're seeing, if you see, Lord, that we're heading down the wrong path, if you're seeing, Lord, that there, there are character issues in our lives, that you work with us and you discipline us and you shape us and you bring things into our lives to, to challenge us and to grow us, and Lord, this discipline is painful at times. But we thank you for your loving care, Lord. And we thank you that unlike human parents, you always get it right. And we want to submit to your discipline. And as we go into communion in a few moments, we think of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 where he said, 
Examine yourselves before you eat of the bread and drink the wine. Examine yourselves. If we judged ourselves, we wouldn't need God to judge us. And that is why some of you are sick and why some among you have even died, i.e. fallen asleep. Lord, help us not to make light of your discipline. And we pray that you would shine your spotlight onto our hearts right now. Lord, if there's a root of bitterness, if there's sexual immorality, if there's unjustifiable anger, resentment, all these things that pollute our lives and slow us down in the Christian race, Lord, bring conviction, help us to repent of them, to, to seek holiness. Let's just take a few moments to be quiet before the Lord and to just ask Him if there's anything that He wants to bring to your attention. So the bread that we will eat together, it represents Jesus' broken body on the cross. The juice that we drink together, it represents the blood of Jesus. And it's a covenantal meal. And if you've entered into this covenant with God, the new covenant, then as the song plays during our worship, just come on up and Eat the bread and drink the juice, but do it with, with an awareness of what you're doing and why you're doing it. And do it in the presence of the Lord with a grateful heart.